Harmony. Never heard of it. Not many people have, senor. It's sort of exclusive. So am I. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons, and whack-ass inflections from Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially It's a degree absolute. Glenn. Chris. You and I didn't meet until we were ostensibly grown-ups, but we both saw The Prisoner first during our adolescent years, Uh and based on what I've heard you say about that period of your life, both on this show and in private... I can clearly see how number six and his strange predicament resonated with you so powerfully in those formative days. Now, you are nicer than he is, Mm. but I see the familial resemblance. Mm. Uh, As an adult now, you do a very credible Magoon impression. The listeners agree on this. Mm. Um, But after this week's episode, which is Living in Harmony, there is one particularly notable distinction that shall keep you and Patty McGee forever separate, Glenn. Uh, Would that be the wide whale corduroys? What would it be? He's not willing to wear his guns in public. (laughs) That's nice. I walked into it, but I appreciate it. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is such an odd episode. Um, And um, do you want to do you want to welcome the listeners in because they're going to have to strap in for this one as well? Okay. All right. Are we gonna Are we gonna fast forward? Are you just eager to do that because in 1966, Patrick McGowan, star of the long-running TV spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village. Each resident, most residents, most residents. Re- are referred to only by a number: surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time, and innately and unambiguously and lava lampedly of mm. its time. That short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. Glenn. Yeah, it was. All right. You seem impatient to, to get right to it. No faffing around. We got a guest. Y- yes, I know. I know. We, we need to be respectful of uh, our, our guest's time. All right. Welcome, everyone, to the private, personal, by-hand, punch-card-driven podcast where we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series and we push it mm-hmm. like a rotting corpse beneath a bed of daisies. Okay. All right. Sure. Sure. Five out of six. We file it. Like the yellow and black humors of the body, which in the theory of the Greek physician Hippocrates accounted for half the total sum of humors, the other of two, of course, being flood and blem. Uh, okay. All right. Wow. That's conceptual. Uh, <laughs> conceptual yet sweaty. So uh, I'll uh-huh. give it a five. <laughs> that's me, Glenn. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. All right. We stamp it. Like the electric newcomer who was nominated for both an Oscar and a BAFTA in 1962 for his unforgettable performance in the title role of Peter Ustinov's adaptation of Herman Melville's Billy Budd. Okay. Uh, He's very hot in that film. Uh, Six out of six. Some of which because of Stamp. (laughs) Kneel before Budd, Glenn. Mm. Willingly. Uh, Willingly. (laughs) Okay, if we're going to cut that. Uh, We brief it like the emerald-hued delicates Burt Ward donned to fight crime in the Dutch-angled back alleys and helpfully labeled villain's lairs of Gotham City. Okay, well, I mean, i got to give that a 10 out of 6 just because I (laughs) may. 
We debrief it like Le Chief preparing to interrogate the newest and possibly swollest member of MI6's 00 section in Casino Royale, the 1953 novel, the 2006 film, and in none of the other various adaptations of said literary work. Uh, six out of six. Oh, oh, seven out of six. Yeah. Wow, you take really good care of your body. <laughs> we number it like the 2002 remix of the first single off of U2's experimental oh, 1993 God. album Zuropa, wherein The Edge contributed his third and to date final lead vocal in the band's oeuvre, performing a disaffected rap while in the famous Sinead O'Connor-style close-up one-take video, various objects, limbs, and other associated distractions are projected against his face. All right, so I guess I should just be grateful it's not Aliens, it's not Hudson Hawk, and it's not uh, Lethal Weapon or Die Hard. So um, I'll give that a, a, a three out of six. I feel number... Okay, and your and your guest gave it a our guest our guest gave it a thumbs down. So uh-huh. that's that's uh-huh. taking it down to like a one and a Indeed. half, one a Grammy, Glenn, uh-huh. one a Grammy. Glenn, we're going to talk McGoons, we're going to talk MacGuffins. Okay. Our inquiry into this still perplexing document is not of a degree oh, equivocal. Yep. It is not of a degree listless. Nope. It is not of a degree flighty. Nuh-uh. What is it, Glenn? It's a degree absolute, Chris. It is, and today it is also of a degree gregarious. Because where once were two, there now are three. That was stirring. Stirring, yes. And we have a guest to welcome. He is a television writer and producer. He's also a podcast producer and host of the Writers Panel podcast, as well as Dead Pilot Society, in which television pilots that were brought, in which television pilots that were bought and developed, they weren't brought, that's the problem, uh, but never to produce, are given the table reads they deserve. He is also, also the co-creator of... The Thrilling Adventure Hour, a scripted genre comedy series starring famous people you love. Basically, he's either writing or talking about writing on a podcast about writing. Tonight, however, he's talking about a particularly mystifying episode of The Prisoner on a podcast (laughs) about The Prisoner. Ben Blacker, my friend, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you both for having me. I have a lot of follow-up questions already. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. And the first is... Chris, how in shape are you? Because you really had to stretch for that number one. <laughs> I hope you're not sore. I am a little sore. Got my second shot yesterday, and I and I did just go for a run before we were, were doing this. So um, that accounts for the sweatiness and certainly none of the, the things I've just said. Sweaty, sweaty in body and in mind. Yeah, no, this is intimidating because we, we, we have an actual proven, accomplished funny person here with us who has a reliable spidey sense for when a joke is too much work and that is that is a sense that uh i more than you i think glenn just kind of ignore because i i enjoy having you get exasperated when i just try way 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 too hard yeah Um, yeah yeah i'm a big fan of bending over backwards uh for the pun we once did an episode, a segment of Thrilling Adventure Hour in our punniest segment, which was a superhero riff uh-huh. um, in which a supervillain stole a mass of water and wouldn't let people around into it. And we called it Right the One Inlet. Oh, wow. We've been coasting wow. off that ever since. <laughs> wow. Nine out of six, Ben. Um, <laughs> so so was, was six. that a was that a Captain Laserbeam? Would that have been a that was a Captain Laserbeam? You and your your writing partner Ben Blacker. I mean, you ben guys Acker. write all ben of Acker. the segments on the on the. Th- I, this is, oh, this is black. Okay, that's embarrassing. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. We've only been working together for over 15 years, so it almost it almost happens <laughs> always. I mean, Glenn and I get conflated with one another all the time. That's all the not time. True. All the time. <laughs> of course. <laughs> 
You gentlemen, I mean, in recent years, you've had a couple of guest writers on, but, but I mean, it's still overwhelmingly just the two of you doing uh, Frank and Sadie Doyle, doing uh, Sparks Nevada. So you have several distinct sets of characters and situations that you're working on. And when Glenn said you had agreed to uh, come on to talk about an episode with us, Living in Harmony is the one that I thought of immediately because of uh, Sparks Nevada, Marshall on Mars. Now, I cannot tell from Sparks Nevada whether you are a genuine Western aficionado or if it's just the genre tropes to tackle. Genre tropes, yes. That the, the tropes, yep. that's the word I was fumbling for, are <laughs> yeah. just irresistible. By what strange manipulation of time is the prisoner taken back to the Old West? Raw, rough, and brutal. But they call it living in harmony. What's wrong with our town, mister? Maybe I don't like the way it's run. Oh, you just do as the judge says. He'll look after you. I look after myself. It's a good town. Keep it. So you don't like our town, huh? You insult us! The girl in the saloon was his appealing ally in a town ruled by corruption. Let justice be done. What's the charge? Against you, none. You're free to go. The people of Harmony against Katherine Johnson. You're accused of aiding a prisoner to escape. The prisoner is dealt rough justice in his next brawling adventure on this channel. Before we get into Living in Harmony, the Western episode, I'm going to take another run at formulating a coherent question there. Ben, are you someone who loves Westerns, or is it just that uh, as a comedy writer with a gift for parody and mimicry, this uh, genre is just too ripe a canvas for you to... Resist. I love westerns. Um, I think mm. I, you know, I was like a monster kid, and somehow that bled mm. over into westerns too, because the tropes are as mm -hmm. well defined as horror stuff. So, like, those are my two genres. And it, you know, when it came time to start putting together uh, Thrilling Adventure Hour, like that's the stuff that Acker and I leaned on. And were you more a John Ford guy or more a Sergio Leone guy? Because this is like this episode was at, coming out at the time when, when all the Sergio Leone films were being put um, Oh, I didn't even think about it in that context. Yeah, I don't know Leone as well. And I know he's like the um, the preferred Western auteur for mm -hmm. uh, the gener yeah. this current generation of filmmakers. Mm -hmm. But like, I love the classic American Westerns. I love the John Ford films. My favorite is 310 mm -hmm. to Yuma. Um, like that to me is just a perfect Western story in that it's so stripped back. Like Stagecoach mm. has that too, where it's just right. this stripped, at, stripped back story. Uh, it's lean and you get to live in the characters. High uh -huh. Noon is another one. Yeah, High Noon. High Noon, which which contributes the, well, it almost contributed the title of this episode. The, the song was Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, which was originally applied to the teleplay for this episode that we're discussing. And then David Tomlin, uh, writer, producer, or, or someone in management, decided that that title would fit better the McGoonless episode that Glenn and I discussed last week that was mostly shot while McGoon was off in L.A. filming Ice Station Zebra. Oh. Which was, you know, was a just a body swap, you know, kind of desperation. How do we do this without our star? But it was originally called Face Unknown, which would have made a lot yeah. more sense to for the lone episode where you have uh, Nigel Stock, a familiar but to viewers of this series new actor replacing our our lead for one episode. 
wow, that was a convoluted. <laughs> <laughs> what actually happened was also quite That's convoluted. absolutely true. And speaking of convoluted, we'll talk about this episode. But Ben, what is your relationship to the prisoner itself? How did you come to it? Uh, how old were you when you first encountered it? And where does it? And what place does it hold in your heart? I believe I was like an old teenager when I first heard of it. And I don't remember how I first heard of it. Um, but I remember getting... It was before you could rent DVDs. So I was renting uh, VHS tapes of The Prisoner. And I watched the whole series. I must have been in college or maybe just before. Um, and I loved it because it was also like we were in the beginning right. of The X-Files and mm. we were a few years out of Twin Peaks. And like this was really pushing a button for me for sure. Um, and then uh, and I texted this to you last night, Glenn. I have not watched it at all right. <laughs> until last night when I watched this episode. But I always like it. I it holds a place in my heart. Yeah, for this sure. is exactly the same boat we're in. This this podcast is really about reacquainting yourself with something you loved unreservedly as a teen, as a snot nosed punk, and then coming back to it as an adult, where you have maybe more understanding of how allegory works and how allegory can sometimes overwhelm, and how these themes which have inspired, this show has inspired so many people that come after it. So it's fascinating to watch it in that context, to see where something this weird, yeah. uh, which was on mainstream television, ha had had its roots. I mean, I saw it in reruns on PBS. It seemed like a, a very heady PBS-y thing at the time. Yeah, but thing when you go back and listen to the, the four Velvet Underground albums, like they're still good. Okay. I mean, they still, <laughs> the songs hold up. And in this case, I think many, <laughs> many episodes are, are, are still strong. You can't really give it a, a blanket approval, but that's why we're doing it an episode at a time. <laughs> Can I ask you guys, because like I've seen pieces of episodes over the years for sure, but I haven't sat down to watch an episode until watching um, this one for uh, last night. It feels, and maybe it's just the TV of the time, but it's so deliberate. It's so like that thing of it was still exciting to watch people walk across the room on yeah. screen. Uh, and and like, so that does so much of the heavy lifting. Like these episodes could have been 32 Absolutely. minutes long, but instead they're 55. Yeah. And, and I mean, so many of the, the key writers um, and directors who worked on this series had come with McGowan from Danger Man before this, which started out as a 30 minute show. I'm sure a lot of attention was paid to that sort of time filling arithmetic. And a lot of the, the most delightful uh, and surreal stuff in the show we're finding seems to come out of a need to find another five minutes to uh, fill uh, a 50 minute network hour. Yeah. Right. And I, th I was going to I was going to jump to the show's defense and now I'm not because uh, I would think that this episode, which is trying to steep itself in the genre in the Western setting, wants to spend a little bit more time looking around maybe and kind of give, giving you that feel. But the other the regular series that are set in the village are also doing that because they want to make you feel the village is another character in the show because they want to they want to make you feel uh, oh that God. how have we not said that until I now know, how I have know. we avoided <laughs> that cliche oh. until now <laughs> but um, yeah th this there is a deliberateness to this pacing that feels very much of its time and and we find that in many of the uh, the regular quote unquote regular prisoner episodes because mm -hmm. there is just this need to to constantly show you it's all show no tell <laughs> in a way that we are showing you too much it's like the thing i i, I, yeah. I did not learn at the writer's workshop was like show don't tell but like no no sometimes you got to tell just fucking tell us <laughs> the thing that i i like about this episode i mean this episode is not um 
That's the word I'm looking for here. Good. It's not good. But it is interesting mm. because mm. we're looking at it from two removes. Because we're looking at it through two filters, basically. Like, so the, the first one is obviously we're iterating a prisoner episode through this Western genre. But then more importantly, I think, this genre is being interpreted and interpolated by Brits, right? Brits who do not have the kind of gun culture which this genre was birthed in. Like, this, that's what this, this genre is kind of about. Now, certainly, it's not like they like somebody who's not American can't make a Western because look at Sergio Leone. Like, he made the definitive Westerns for many people. But right. it's that there's something about Brits that don't... I mean, they get colonialism, and Westerns are about colonialism. They get colonialism a lot. They get it better than we do, but arguably. But... There, it just feels like when you watch these people in their costumes, it looks like it feels like play acting. It feels the sets feel like, like, theater, theater dinner theater sets. I mean, there's just something that's that. And then maybe I'm just looking at it. And if I watched an episode of Gunsmoke, I'd feel the same way. I don't think so though. I think there's something specific, something British about this approach that doesn't quite connect. Am I? You guys feel that? Well, I mean, one thing that I meant to find out was whether the, the American TV westerns of the time were exported to England. The Prisoner was on in England in 67, came to the States in 68. In 1968, Bonanza and Gunsmoke were, were both top 10 network shows. Like you said, Glenn, we were watching it from a remove, and I'm thinking like, oh, this reminds me of uh, Bounty Law, the you know the fictional TV show in Once Upon a Time oh, sure, in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. TV westerns, I mean, I, I agree that this looks more like a Leone western, you know, which had just come out in mm-hmm. England in, in 67, the year this episode was shot. The American audience, anyway, like there would not have been any kind of remove. They were watching this stuff every right. night. Right. But there's also, and I'm sure, Glenn, this is what, what you were going to talk about, but like there's also a purposeful mm-hmm. remove, right? Like we know that this is a right. show. We know that this is a show for mm-hmm. number six. And so the fact that it is all, it looks like set dressing mm-hmm. and it is set dressing it one it covers a lot of production mm-hmm. sins which is great because i think it still mm-hmm. looks really mm-hmm. good um but it's also right it's it's this whole meta story that's going on there's layers and layers here um right i did want to say like you were mentioning this idea of the village having such a sense of place um and i think the prisoner as a whole succeeds in that so well like mm-hmm. That to me is the biggest thing to the biggest influence that the that the show has is like the immersion in place there. And weirdly, this episode doesn't have that. <laughs> like it made me question the premise of the show in a way that I think I wasn't supposed to. Or like, you've had this western part of the village this whole time, yeah. and we never went there, and you never yeah. mentioned it. And what is your standee budget, right? Like, he's number six has looked yeah, around. Yeah. What? Is, how much are you spending <laughs> yeah. on standees? Yeah, he loves walking. No, they've established that yeah. he he is a, he is a wanderer. He loves to walk around sulking with his hands in his pockets. So yes, he should have found the saloon before now. We'll get to this, but the, and there's there's but there's nothing in the plan that says it has to be a western, right? It could be a science fiction thing. They could do a locked room mystery. They could have like they could throw any genre at this thing. So maybe this this area of the village is just like a, a back lot. They just throw anything they want to. <laughs> Maybe it's like just a back lot at MGM Borumwood Studios, possibly, Glenn, where they possibly. can just change it over in a weekend. I'm just, I'm just spitballing <laughs> yeah. here. But. I wanted this to be more weird. I mean, it's weird, but it's not the kind of weird that I expect from the prisoner. I mm-hmm. wanted it to be more distinctive. I also, I wanted it to be less of a kind of um, 
its pacing is very slow until those last three minutes when everything happens at once in a way that just leaves you <laughs> mystified and not satisfied at all. You're like, what the hell happened here? But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Are we ready to launch ourselves into this episode proper? Yeah. Let me talk very briefly about David Tomlin. This, now, after George Markstein, the script editor, quit, um, apparently... McGowan and Tomlin were desperate enough to just ask the crew if anybody had any story ideas. And this guy, Ian Rakoff, totally untried screenwriter who had been working as a film editor on the series, he says in a memoir that he published about his his time working on The Prisoner that this was an idea that he pitched to Tomlin. There's also the story out there that McGowan's stunt double, Frank Mayer, came up with uh, this notion that they should do a Western with McGowan while they were playing squash together. So I, I like this once upon a time in Hollywood idea that the star and his stunt double just hang out together sure. and shoot the shit when they're not making the show. But supposedly McGowan had had wanted to do a Western. Rakoff did not know that he was being reduced in credit to, you know, from an idea by or a story credit till he actually saw the episode. So he was he was aggrieved. Tomlin, by the way, has a major career after this. He is AD to Kubrick on Barry Lyndon. He is first AD on Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, the three 80s Indiana Jones movies, worked on Donner Superman and worked on Gandhi, worked on Out of Africa, first AD on Braveheart. So that's the third Best Picture winner that he was first. First mm-hmm. AD on would have been four if Raiders had won in 81 over Chariots of Fire. I think Raiders is better than Chariots of Fire. I agree. Not sure if it's better than Reds. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he goes on to have a big career after this. Let's get into it, Glenn. Let's get into it. So the opening. A man with no name rides through the Old West. Now this has to be some stock photography because there is no place in Britain that looks that arid. <laughs> Right? It's just, it, like, there's mountains. And arid is not a thing you associate with the British Isles. They're very wet. He rides into a marshal's office. Uh, he throws down his badge, takes his gun belt off his wide whale corduroys. But no T-sets break. No T-sets were harmed in the making of this intro. One, one of the things we're, we're missing here. Yeah. I, I don't like it when China survives an episode intact. It's one of the things you need in the intro, right? And so I'm mm-hmm. just imagining the people who are watching this completely mystified because they didn't expect this. Uh, it is clearly uh, everything about that shot for shot, not shot for shot, but like the shot, the, the angle that we see the uh, marshal. Uh, is the same, more or less the same as we saw in every other episode. So he is now walking, carrying his saddle, because apparently the the horse comes with the job. No job, no horse. So he's just shit out of luck, has to walk his saddle around. Now uh, he's seen in the Sergio Corbucci film Django. Okay. I think it was Alex Cox who said thinks that they're quoting Django. I mean, Ian Rakoff says he saw it in a Gene Autry comic book. So, okay, probably a very common image. Okay, the, you know, the horseman with no horse. This is good. This is context that I did not have. I just thought it was weird. He's walking through countryside that looks very English. Now they're rolling hills, so this is clearly a heath, <laughs> possibly a moor. <laughs> we are clearly back in Blighty. Uh, Heathcliff, it's Kathy, I've come home. He's stopped by a dude with a gun, and the first of many unconvincing fights <laughs> unfolds. And then there's five or six dudes, all wearing black hats because we talked about genre tropes. They're wearing black hats. Mm-hmm. They beat him up. They load him onto the back of a horse. We cut to an Old West town. The establishing shot of this town features... Wagon wheels that are very conspicuously, you know, to recall the penny-farthing bicycle, I think. that's. I think we're meant to make that connection there. Ah, there and you go. then uh, the credits come up, and the guy who plays the kid, one Mr. Alexis Kenner, gets a box around his name. This yeah, has not happened before. This has not happened since. Now, Ben, you are a veteran Hollywood insider. 
I know that there's all <laughs> kinds of like agent maneuvering about, oh, my guy has to get the with or the and or gets a featuring or an also starring. How does a box mean? I do imagine that was some agent maneuvering. Uh, where he gets to be set apart, right? Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I was I was going to ask you guys if it had happened before nope. or or since. Nope, it had it's not so happened before. And I mean, and it struck me that Alexis Canner is billed above Valerie French, who plays Kathy, mm-hmm. and David Bauer, who plays the judge. The other two uh, guest stars this episode, obviously, they have more dialogue, but um, they might also have more screen time than the kid. Not yeah. sure. Well, I mean, they clearly have more dialogue. He's in yeah, it a yeah, lot. Yeah. He's in it a um, lot. Was was he a established star at the time or an established actor? He wasn't. He he'd bounced around. No, he's so. very young here, and uh, there is. It's clear that McGowan was impressed by him because he gets a non-speaking part in the girl who was deaf. The, the episode that follows this, and he gets mm-hmm. a major fucking featured monologue in the final episode of the series Fallout, and he is just squirrely as hell, <laughs> but charismatic. I suppose there does seem to be that McGowan um, was very impressed with Canner's acting, but also his perfectionism. I read something where they, they both practiced that quick draw a lot. And so McGowan was very impressed that this kid would would put in the work that he did. But uh, right. yeah. Do you have the telegram, Glenn? Do you have the telegram that McGowan sent to Alexis Canner from the set of Ice Station Zebra? I do and- not, but I'm sure you do. This should really be you because you're the one who can do the Magoon. No, no, go ahead. um, Canner says, uh, (laughs) Magoon cabled him, I'm taking lessons from Sammy Davis Jr. and Steve McQueen in Quick Draw. Hope you live up to expectations. Oh, jeez. Magoon. Okay. I didn't realize Sammy Davis Jr. had a Quick Draw. It doesn't seem like a Quick Draw artist. That's the movie I have not seen. Yeah. Okay, so they drop uh, six off in a town with... I mean, it struck me a good deal more stonework than your average Western town has. Your Deadwoods, your Rock Ridges, your Tombstones. They're not known for mm. their masonry, for their kind of old English masonry, but whatever. Mm. Leave that aside. Mm. He is that, welcome to the, the town of uh, Harmony. That's the spaghetti Western influence, right? Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. It's all these old Italianate villages. <laughs> uh, he is welcomed to the town of Harmony by a cringeworthy stereotype that makes the south of the border mascot Pedro look nuanced. It's like, what if Speedy <laughs> Gonzalez had bad teeth? That is, that is just. You'll find out, Senor. It's not wise to ask too many questions here. Hey, hombre. You look like a man who could use a drink. Why you not try the saloon? Is uh, Larry Taylor? Yeah, Larry his, Taylor. <laughs> his Eli Wallach thing. He is credited as Mexican Sam. Mexican Sam. Uh, and uh, the the year after this, he's in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Glenn. That's everything I know about him. Who is he in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? I know Chitty Chitty Bang Bang inside and out. Who is he? He was Mexican Sam. Again. He was Mexican. He reprised Sam. his role. <laughs> <laughs> and if he was doing that same accent, that accent, by the way, is a hate crime because like. <laughs> So Mexico has an Eastern Europe? I didn't realize that because it's just these weird... <laughs> I thought that too. It's just, what are you doing? Larry Taylor was English, but apparently he played Mexicans in a lot of movies. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I, it was a different time. It doesn't. It still sucks. Um, so at this point, this is when Six says, Harmony, never heard of it. And this is when you learn... <laughs> <laughs> That's that six is going to be doing an American accent throughout. So there's going to be lots of hard R's here in harmony. 
Took me right right to the Nolan Batman movies, Glenn. Loved it. Loved it. It's he's doing Liam Neeson doing American. Yes, I'm very American. But you know, ultimately he's gonna end up sent like, like nerds like me, we hit our R's very hard. Um uh, because I think we're rule followers, right? So when we see an R <laughs> you, 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 you got to hit the R. Right. You can't do a rolling stop. You have to come to a full stop when you see that R. So he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna spend this episode sounding like comic book R, more like Kermit. He sounds more. He's got a hard, he's got a kind of hard Kermit R, uh, and I am totally fucking here for it. He goes into the saloon because the saloon doors are open. Nice. Nice. I get it. Okay, yeah. good. Just, 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 just. I, you know, I was thinking yesterday, I was like, I, we got to do a, I'm from Earth. I was like, no, he'll hate that. No, Don't do that. No, Don't he'll do hate that. that. <laughs> and he might hate it, but I. I, I love I, it. I get royalties. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I am an editor at Smithsonian Air and Space Magazine, Ben. So if you are cashing in every time we publish Earth, you are a, a wealthy man. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Earth. He meets Kathy, who is played by Valerie French, as you mentioned, Chris, uh, and and deals with her remarkably civilly, which is how we know he's tripping balls, which he must be on so many hallucinatory drugs because he is usually a dick to pretty women. Also, young Glenn, women. in support of your theory, um, she is slightly, just slightly older than Patrick McGoon. Okay, so so she is on the, the warmer side of the dividing line of how he will interact with any woman on this show. He's, He's 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 respectful to older women, a dick to younger. Um, she says regulars get the first one on the house. He says he's not regular. <laughs> I wait. Hold, all right, I have a question. Yep, yep, yep. He enters the saloon. Uh, the bartender slides a very clean-looking glass and true. whiskey to him. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> um, which, you know, I. That, that puts everything into question if I'm number six. <laughs> but presumably this whiskey is on the house because he's just been, he didn't ask for it. Right. Is it implied that he's a regular? This seems to be his first time there. This is, it's clearly like, it doesn't make any sense on the surface, but she's saying if you become a regular, you'll get this every time. Um, mm-hmm. And I hear regular and I go right to constipation because Obviously. I'm seven. But like, Constipation would actually explain a lot of his behavior. <laughs> a lot of the preceding episodes we've seen, like if he just had, he just took a like a, a chug some Metamucil, he'd be fine. Uh, he reaches. How are the facilities in the village? Uh, we we this know we he goes know. to the bathroom. Um, well, we we know he's observed. He's surveilled when he's shaving. Now, now yeah. other other grooming and uh, you know ablution. Like yeah, yeah. We we don't know. Presumably, mm-hmm. presumably that too. Mm. Oh, I want to, before we go much further, yep. I want to also add, uh, this, first of all, this is, I hope you have three hours for this. Um, I, three times the length of the episode mm. is what I go for. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the opening. Yeah. Like, I love when a TV series shakes up their usual opening. Mm-hmm. That gets me going mm-hmm. as a TV lover of TV. Like, X-Files changing that oh, truth right. is out mm-hmm. there. Do yeah. it. Yep. I love it. <laughs> um, like, anything that ch- shakes up, like... Early in our career, uh, Acker and I were, we did like some freelance episodes on shows. And we were asked to come in and pitch. And <laughs> I remember he had, Ben had to take me aside afterwards and be like, you don't have to pitch a bottle episode every time. You don't have to pitch the weird someone else's point of view, the Zeppo episode right, every right, right. time. Just do the thing that they're looking for. Like, no, I love it when a show shakes mm-hmm. things up. Did you? Uh, anyway. Did you shake it up on Supernatural? Did you do a different uh, credits on Supernatural? No. no. Oh God, oh. no. 
That show wouldn't shake things up. I was going to say, uh, they if seem, it cost a penny. They, they seem very protective of what they had. Okay. I, I wanted yes. to ask you about that. I mean, that, so this is the, the second episode of the second production block of The Prisoner, where they had done their initial 13, which, you know, was going to be a full season. And then something happened. And I don't understand exactly what, because apparently the decision not to make a second full season, but only to make four concluding episodes happened before the first season had even started to air, even even in England. Uh -huh. So I don't know how they could have made the determination that it was not successful because no one had seen it yet. Yeah. Um, of course, I see this and I'm thinking of all the Star Trek episodes where they're, they're gangsters in the 30s or they're in the Old West, which are clearly cost-saving measures in that case. But this is kind of a lavish prisoner episode in many ways apparently they they shot this over five weeks and usually they were on a two-week schedule mm -hmm. um there's a lot more handheld camera in in this than we've it's ever true. seen in this series before so there there is some production value in this episode i think in from what i understand about the prisoner there and and correct me if i'm wrong the issue with like they did what 17 episodes mm -hmm. is that what it wound yep. up being mm -hmm. so their issue was never budget like they were ambitious and they were allowed to be ambitious, but it was story and right. they just didn't want to tell that much story. Yep. So this is, so they had to do these filler episodes mm -hmm. and this is clearly a filler episode. Right. Time. Um, as was like, like you said, the one you guys just watched, like us all except how many, six of them, seven of them were filler. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think, I think there's a core seven. I think M Maguin always That's says there crazy. are, there are seven that he considers legit and essential and the rest is filler. Yeah. Which is why, like, you can have this lavish production, you know, right. you can go all out. By all means, if it's going to be filler, make it look great. Yeah. And I got to imagine this was a pre-existing back lot, right? They're, I mean, like, they, they were making, didn't they make westerns? I mean, I would be, this would yes. be useful to know about the time. But I don't else? know. They couldn't just have built this for this. I mean, I don't know. Were there, were there English westerns? I don't, I, you know. I can't, I've never heard yeah. of it. But I would love if there were. The Prisoner, the official companion to the classic TV series by Robert Fairclough, or Fairclough, uh, Anyway, that book says this was the Western town was the MGM Borenwood backlot, but they did location <laughs> shooting for Living in Harmony at Dunstable Downs, which is a location That's that had also been used for The Saint and uh, Danger Man. So those moors, Glenn. Have blunderbuss, will travel. Downs. Was, uh, it's a big British uh, thing. Anyway, um, uh, he reaches for a glass of whiskey. It gets shot out of his reach. And I saw that and I thought to myself, that seems like a strangely dangerous stunt for such a small yeah. payoff. It turns out they just kind of had it on fishing line. They yank it out of the shot, and then there's a gunshot sound. So, oh. yeah. It's, they uh, do it so beautifully cool. in Hudson Hawk, Glenn, when Bruce Willis okay. raises the... Uh, we're going to get through this. <laughs> ...cappuccino after getting out of prison. That donut hole eating son of a bitch take it in the year for a beer. Rat bastard! Had the perfect amount of foam. I have not referenced Hudson Hawk on that. We are more than a dozen episodes in here. This is the yeah, first Hudson Hawk reference, Glenn. Uh, shut up. Your restraint is staggering. Listen, Chris, follow me on Twitter. Check out my viral Hudson Hawk recasting tweet. <laughs> it was huge. I, I'm oh, astonished wow. that I have not seen it, but I will uh, make a point yeah, I, of I, finding I, it. I follow you, but I, I think I must have, like, I think after so many years with Chris, the words Hudson Hawks are just kind of automatically <laughs> blocked from my brain, not from my Twitter feed. You could be swinging on a star, Glenn. Oh, God. The man who shot it out of his reach is the famously boxed Alex Alexis Kenner, uh, known as the kid here. He's very blonde. He's very symmetrical. 
But I got to say, that man has black eyes, lifeless eyes, like a doll's eyes. Like, oh boy, that, like I don't. They, they, there's nothing going on. Um, well, he is Canadian, Glenn. So yeah, is he? That, that oh. may he is. Yes. So he's like he's like. Uh, and the judge is American. Yes, so. he is. Kathy uh, so is English. Right? She's yeah. like the South Park dotted eyes guys. Who are they? <laughs> yeah. Harry and Pepper. I can't remember. Terrence and something. Terrence and <laughs> Terrence and Philip. Terrence and Philip. Thank you. The man who invites Six to join him is the judge. He is played by David Bauer, an American actor who got blacklisted in Hollywood, so he had to relocate to Britain. Oh, oh wow. um, he's, he's rocking this uh, riverboat gambler couture. Six punches the kid for a perfectly justified reason, uh, because <laughs> you don't want to mix glassware and gunplay. That's that's stupid. Uh-huh. No one wants to do that. The judge is playing solitaire. He's got this hair that is, like, perfectly white. It, you only get that if you do a blue rinse. Like, only my grandmother and him have that hair. And the actor has a kind of Spencer Tracy vibe, right? He's got a Spencer yeah. Tracy meets E.G. Marshall, like, love child yes. vibe there. It's in the neck. It's in the thickness of the neck. <laughs> so the judge and the kid share a meaningful look. Then the kid puts on his hat. And there is no other way to say this. The kid puts on his hat like a Bob Fosse chorus boy. It's all perfect angles. And then he leaves. Um, and the judge describes him as he's good, he's mean, he's sensitive, which is mean in a nutshell. Uh, he asks why Six turned in his gun and badge. And then Six uh, does not answer that question. He just gives him a grammar lesson. He says, with whom versus who with? Because of course he does. Because of <laughs> course Six is that guy. Because yeah. of course Six would do that. Because everything I, we have come to learn. I only do that when I'm in saloons. I mean, you, you have to be context matters, right place, right time. I'm yeah. only the grammar cop when I'm in an Old West saloon. The judge says, oh, I got a job for you. Six is interested. He takes his saddle and leaves because... It's just gonna be walking around. It's like it's like his purse. It's like his purse. He just can't. He can't leave it behind. All his stuff is hanging off that saddle. <laughs> That's right. It's gotta take That's it. That's right. His cell phone. His cell phone. <laughs> his his uh, his lipstick. His uh... exactly. So in we learn that as he leaves the saloon, we learn that it is called the Silver Dollar Saloon, and it is known for its prickly pear beers. Uh, and if there is not an insufferable craft brewery in Red Hook that offers prickly pear beers, they are just leaving money on the table. That is just, that's there. They either had that sign already lying around the lot, right? Uh-huh. Or they were like, prickly pear sounds quite American. <laughs> we must put that. See, I would argue prickly pear. Oh, it's a bit prickly. That sounds very <laughs> does, British to yeah. me. It does not sound. It does sound British. They were later acquired by the multinational Buccatino business. <laughs> I, yeah, I can't imagine they had it lying around. It is a strangely specific thing. Maybe it's a real thing. Who knows? Who the hell knows anymore? It may be. And it suggests cactus and that kind of <laughs> That's thing. Yeah. It does suggest it does. Western style. That's True, it does. But wouldn't you make like a gavi? Wouldn't you make like... Anyway, um, he tries to buy a horse, but the horses are too expensive. Yeah. How much? $5,000. For rest? They're expensive. How's business? The allegory shifts, right? So it's not the security state trapping him in the village. This time it's capitalism, man. <laughs> this, is, this is what's keeping him penned in. He's approached... By the townsfolk, this is, doesn't make any sense, but he's approached by the townsfolk. Well, stranger, fancy living in harmony? It's a good town. Keep it. Well, you don't like our town, huh? You insult us. Are we going to let him do this? He's insulting our town. Let's get it. grow insulted that he wants to leave the town. They turn on him. 
and he gets ushered into the sheriff's office at gunpoint where the judge is waiting for him. You will notice that the judge is basically Nightcrawler in this episode because he just bamfs everywhere. He just appears... (laughs) When the camera turns slightly, he just bamf, 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 bamf. He's up in the rafters. He's down. He's he's in the jail. He's it's it's amazing. Uh, Six asks why he's being held um, prisoner, basically, and he says in his very best Liam Neeson American charge. He says, "Change your mind yet? Charge, protective custody, lock him up, and bring Johnson out here. We mustn't disappoint the crowd." They lock him up, protective custody. They say. Uh, then they send a. Explain this to me. They send out a dude who looks nothing like Six, and the crowd strings him up. Now, do they think that's Six, or do they just want to murder somebody? And and this guy's handy. What, what, what? That was my impression. Okay. Is like the flip side of the story, right? Like what the audience doesn't see, but what the writers know is going on is that they want Six to become the sheriff, so he'll take the gun, so he'll explain himself. Mm-hmm. So what they have to show him is that this is a lawless and violent town Mm -hmm. to get him to that Uh, place. mm -hmm. So my impression was like sending out, um, what's what's her name? Was it her brother? I think it's Kathy's brother, yeah. Kathy's brother, yeah. Yeah. You can't hang my brother, he's done nothing wrong. to find another way to, to kick Kathy, which is very I <laughs> yeah, mean, cruel. That's, that's this show. But anyway, so yeah, it feels like that was like to illustrate that and to get to hit, let it hit home for six. Okay, okay. Uh, that makes more that sense. That was my impression. That makes more sense. I just thought they were just a ravenous mob who were going to kill uh, whatever it, it two ears and a heart. Um, so Kathy runs out saying, don't string up my brother, but they proceed to do that. Uh, I mean, reasonable complaint. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he hasn't done anything, she says. I, by the way, if this were, and, and I don't assume that any of your listeners are familiar with the Thrilling Adventure Hour, but please go you, check you, it out. You, we have some you really should. free episodes. <laughs> you can assume. Um, but I was thinking in this moment where like, if it were a Sparks Nevada, Marshall on Mars episode, she would come out and be like, don't string up my brother. And then someone would be like, well, you're going to have to fill out these forms <laughs> and triplicate. And like, it would be a lot of paperwork involved, yep, yep, yep. which they would talk about for 10 minutes. <laughs> I just want this to happen now. I want I want Joshua yeah. Molina to be the barkeep. I did I want I want it all. Yep. I want it all. We're open to pitches, <laughs> Chris, anytime. <laughs> help, help. So we have this scene uh, where the kid is outside Six's jail cell and he's pacing and he's drinking. And then he does what I interpreted as a mating display, but y'all, I will defer to the heterosexuals as what the hell else is going on there because I don't quite get this. He's just showing off, right? That's what we're that's what we're meant to glean from this. There was something flirtatious about it. Yeah. I I actually took that too. Okay. And I think that might be McGuin and that actor. Like <laughs> that might I be their relationship. Always thought. They had a little buddy buddy thing. I mean McGuin's sending him telegrams from America. Yeah, this is this. You cannot dissuade me from this. I, I think there was something going on, perfectly innocently, but there was there was a connection there because that's For sure. otherwise you can't explain um, Fallout. Uh, Six is rolling his own. I, I like that. I like that little touch. Uh, Kathy comes over. She is in her full uh, winter plumage. <laughs> She's just got feathers <laughs> everywhere. She offers the kid a bottle. We learn that the boy ain't right, and then there is some mild sexual assault. Ha ha ha, 1968. Yay, mild sexual assault. While he's distracted, she takes his keys, 
Uh, then she leaves. Then she just turns right around. <laughs> she doesn't, like, <laughs> wait five minutes. Not that I wanted to see the five minutes, because there was plenty of time. But, like, she just turns right around, throws the keys to him. Kid passes out. Six lets himself out. He goes to the stable, saddles himself a horse. So he is a horse thief now, which is uh, famously... Sure. That is a hanging offense. That is a hanging offense. It's not, not a thing they took lightly back then. Kathy comes over, gives him a canteen, says that he has to go due north. That's the only way out. We now get a scene between the judge and the kid that Six is not present for. So, yeah. how, <laughs> what, this for? who is this for? <laughs> if this is a drug-fueled simulation, are they tripping? Is that what we're meant to believe here? What's going this on This is here? just like the, the shots of the airplane and the boat and all that in Chimes of Big Ben, which that six could not be witnessing or experiencing. That This show cheats like this all yep. the time. It does break the rules, but it lets us have the judge slapping the kid, which will come back at the very end to motivate the kid's behavior in a way that doesn't really motivate the kid's behavior. Um, <laughs> Six gets hogtied. I think that's the term. He gets hogtied as he tries to leave. They drag him back to town uh, across the moors, <laughs> across the very wet and damp and chilly moors. They dump him at the judge's feet in the saloon. Uh, Six looks awful good for being dragged uh, through the <laughs> muck. Judge calls court in session. Six asks, what's the charge? Uh, judge says, nothing. You were only held in protective custody. You can go. A statement which is flatly contradicted by the preceding like minute of the show where he is dragged back to town. But what, what are you going to do? It's Kathy who's being accused. The people of Harmony against Catherine Johnson. Aiding a prisoner to escape. And then they meet this hapless townsperson who's had a line or two before. We learn, we will come to learn his name is Jim. Uh, he is attempting to point out the flaw in the judge's logic, which like, he wasn't, there's no crime here. But judge, you just said he warned a criminal. He was being held in protective custody. She didn't know that. And she helped him, even though he's not crime, but that's not, that's, that's kangaroo court, Kafkaesque, yada, yada, yada. The kid puts his hat and his gun on the bar where Six is drinking, challenging him to a gunfight. Uh, Six doesn't take the bait. So the kid, who's clearly not right, fires twice, grazing Six's cheek and his hand with ketchup, with strawberry jam, with something that is really thick and really viscous. So if it is real blood, Six should go on Coumadin because he is, his veins are coursing with sludge and that is not healthy. He should just lay off the eggs in the morning. I don't know what he has to do. It's very bright. It's very bright. It's very bright. <laughs> it's like, it's... We've commented upon the lavish attention paid to eggs in this, this it's show. It's true. So, uh, That's true. Yeah. It's, and breakfast. He's, he's got to have breakfast less of those big yeah. eggy breakfasts. The judge interrupts, sends the kid back to the jail. Then he says some weird really annoying shit about how, well, he tends to be over-affectionate with Kathy, which uh, that does not hit. That does not hit right. That is gross. So what the show's obviously doing here is they're playing on his, his white knight qualities, his, uh, his tendency to step in where a woman's concerned. In the jail, uh, Kathy is pacing back and forth. She hasn't taken off her headdress. It's the first thing I would have done. I mean, that does not seem comfortable. <laughs> okay, but does does anyone have a costume change in this? I don't. I don't think anyone. That's does, a good right? point, Chris. That's a really yeah. good point. That fits with the simulation, the the play acting. The yeah, I think. Yep. I think that works. He's, he's the kid is pacing back and forth outside, uh, eyeing her very creepily. Then the judge bamps into the jail and shoves a <laughs> sheriff's badge at number six. He accepts as long as they will let her go. Now, to your point, Ben. At this point, if I were number two running the simulation back in his office, I'd think I was making progress, right? Because you've got him 
to accept the badge. You've got him to basically the equivalent of running for office in the village. Like, like it's the same vibe. This is like when in uh, Schizoid Man, where they, they get him around to insisting, I'm I'm six, I'm not 12. Right. I'm t- like, right. uh, I mean, we disagreed over to what extent that was actually working on him and breaking him down. But oh. I thought that was kind of a win for the village. Yep. Judge orders the kid to let Kathy out. Six agrees to wear the badge, not the gun. The next morning, and I know I keep looking for this, but look, the dude who is waiting outside there is wearing John Voight's Midnight Cowboy jacket. <laughs> he is leaning against the wall outside the jail. Uh, like, next year, I think. Midnight Cowboy is 68, right? Yep, 68. Maybe 69. Probably 69. Uh, and outside the jail, he's he, like he, like he's about to go down on Bob Balaban, who's, who, and he challenges... <laughs> He challenges, I guess you'd call it six by saying he doesn't wear a gun either. I guess that's a challenge, and there's a fighty fight, and that fight oh, goes Oh, no, on. you're talking Zeke, right? I'm Zeke. I don't wear I'm a gun Zeke. either. I'm okay. talking about Zeke. That yes. is definitely Robert Rietti. That is, it is really? Zeke's line, absolutely. Yeah, so okay. so Ben, uh, Robert Rietti, this this voice actor who is the, he does most of the, you know, where am I in the village? Most of, like, most of their stock voices are this, this one guy, Robert Rietti, who's uh kind of famous for this and does in a lot of movies too he is in a zillion james bond movies dubbing several actors per movie usually (laughs) so how do you know he's not dubbing this guy chris i just recognize it because well that well zeke like you know i don't need a gun either like i mean he's just speaking the same way that uh when colin gordon is the the masked man at the end of a b and c it's it's the same voice i'm positive it's robert Rietti. yeah it's the same voice chris but what i'm saying is do you, do you think that actor is Robert Rietti, or do you think? He's oh just no, no, no! It's not Robert Rietti. Oh, okay. uh, the actor, okay. the actor is not Robert Rietti because uh, that actor is a, a bigger than Magoon, I think. Yeah, and, yeah. And it's Robert, water, Robert Rietti guy. is is not. He's a he's a small um, dude. Yeah, that fight goes on for entirely too long. Um, and <laughs> in case the in case the audience does not pick up what the show is trying to send, this is again the telling. We cut to the judge who's saying, the boys are showing him it's not safe in harmony without a gun, which we get it. (laughs) Message received. But this makes me wonder. So, like, if I'm in the writer's room on The Prisoner, and and hopefully I'm invited to push on the premise a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, some showrunners do not invite. Mm -hmm. It makes me wonder about the village's plan. Mm -hmm. So they have their overarching want, Mm -hmm. which is to get information from number six or something like, who is he? Something like that. I don't know. It's been 25 years, 20 years. (laughs) The whole premise of the show is that if he tells them why he resigned, everything else will follow. They'll get all the information from it. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's what the show is resting on. So we're just going to accept it. Absolutely. And that's fine. Like that's pure. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. They want that. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the sort of over overarching need of the village the overarching one the way they're going about it in this episode is to make him want to be the sheriff and then make him want to carry a gun Mm -hmm. and then have him do they want him to kill the kid yeah i don't i don't know (laughs) like they keep setting up that confrontation Mm -hmm. right like they're feeding that so that's clearly something they want whether or not it's that's how we get him to pick up the gun. But what does picking up a gun have to do with giving, telling them why he left the agent? Right. Well, it has to do with uh, if they can get it. Because I think the giving up the gun is rejecting the surveillance state, being a spy, giving up being a spy. So mm-hmm. if they can get him to go back and pick up the gun, they might be able to get him to okay. get back and become a spy again or 
or it's a smaller step. Just incorporate, sure. yeah, just incorporate that. And luckily, Ben, in the last three minutes of this episode, number two will explain the entire <laughs> premise in great detail in an incredulous voice uh, that goes on for too long. Um, I mean, I like that in that part we get the American actor and the Canadian actor. Now, now they're doing Brits. Now they're yeah. British. Now they're which I mean, of course they they work in the village. They're part of whatever nefarious organization runs the village. But it's I very just international. found it amusing. Yeah. So uh, six after having his ass handed to him, although he actually held his own, I suppose he goes back to the jail, cleans himself up with a ewer, a uh, 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 water thing, and then uh, Kathy comes in and blushes, and <sighs> that's it. That's all that happens. She blushes, and then yeah. But uh, the thing is, Glenn, she, she didn't think she could blush anymore. Yeah. See. I hate that. In in the original <laughs> I script, that. I that's that's terrible. In the original script, I, they must have kissed, right? There must have been something. There must have been there must have been some basic human interaction. David okay. Tomlin had been working with Magoon for how All many right. years by this point? I think Tomlin would have known that Magoon wasn't going to kiss anybody. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so the blushing uh, climax happens and then yep. she she tells him to leave and he's like bitch i tried uh and then later at the saloon the kid is no, come on straight- glenn what does he say come on glenn. come on i don't remember go ahead i can't resist that kind of hospitality that okay good solid it's solid. a good line it is a good line all right all right i have another question yeah. about yep. the plan yep <laughs> <laughs> why is she telling him to leave yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Is it like a, a rope-a-dope? I think that's a technical uh-huh. uh, con term. Uh-huh. 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 <laughs> Here's where it is unclear. Like, there's this whole thing about it wasn't shown in the States because of the allusion to hallucin- hallucinatory drugs. There is one line. That's it. It is not. Nothing yeah. about this. So other people say it's probably because of the anti-violence, you know, refusing to take up arms for a cause. So is so she actually exists. She's not. She's not a cutout, and she's... Not an no. actor. She she's of the village, right? This so I, very much yeah, fits right. into what we know, what has been established of of Number Six's psychology. You know, he right. is going to see enemies everywhere and and feel like there is some you know vast multi tentacled uh, you know all crushing totalitarian organization opposed to him. But yep. if a woman seems to be concerned for him and particularly seems powerless and in need of his help, that is a consistent weakness that that he has so but at the end we, uh, we'll find out that they say oh we might get implicated like as we as we do this experiment on him he's the one loaded up with drugs but we might be implicated this whole show does not make sense unless they're also taking the drugs too um <laughs> then it makes sense then some of this weird behavior that happens in the last two minutes anyway it loses me in the last two minutes see i yeah. i largely disagree with you i i enjoyed minutes one through 48 mm. quite a bit Okay. I liked 48 through 50. Oh, okay. So uh, that that's a... That's... Just tell me. Just tell me what you want your plot to be, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then yeah. I'm out. Make it, a, make it a TikTok. I'm out of there. Yeah. That. And just the, like, the fact that we actually have to watch Kathy get killed twice, you yeah. know, and like, that, yeah. don't, that just seems needlessly cruel. And yeah. the thing that, that number 28, whatever, whatever Kathy's number is when she's revealed as a village operative, when her mm-hmm. dying words, like, oh, I wish it was real, like... Terrible, terrible. Yeah, I hate that. That's what. That's worse than I didn't Ugh. know I could blush any anymore. Yep, much worse. Uh, so the kid in the saloon is straight creeping on Kathy. The kid burns a guy who's getting affectionate with Kathy. There is a gunfight of sorts, but uh, because Will draws first, the kid shoots him, and then first of all, this guy Jim is like, "Oh, well, Will shot first, sheriff." So he's like trying to 
to cozy up to the kid, yep. but then as soon as the kid leaves, he's, he's like, wearing yeah, an obnoxious T-shirt that says "Will shot first for the rest <laughs> of the episode. First, so. Right? He he's he's trying to like the town tells him to like cowboy up, and the judge looks on, and then he bamps around. A guy named Jim offers up to offer goes to six and offers to help him clean up the town, which earns him the judge's wrath. And then they the judge then sets his goons upon them, and they don't just beat him up; they a fucking a kill him and leave him at Six's uh, very attractive roll top desk. Uh, I like the desk. It's good. It's a good desk. As desks go, Six is tempted to pick up his guns. We know because he picks up his guns and then puts them down. So that was a temptation just then. He goes back to the saloon. He tells Kathy to meet him at the edge of town. Never tell mm-hmm. anybody that. What yeah. towns are round? Where, like, where, where, <laughs> what, what edge? What part of the edge of town? Go to where the darkness is, Glenn. Follow, <laughs> I follow knew, the darkness. I, was, I knew as soon as I said edge of town where you'd go. Uh, they're leaving tonight. Uh, she says she told him the pass is guarded, which is not what she told him. She told him to just go north, but, you know, whatever. Uh, six of one. He rides to the edge of town. He sees the pass guarded, takes that first guy down. There is an entirely too much time spent on how he takes down the second guard, like Tarzan, by swinging on a vine? Swinging on a rope. Swinging no, on a rope. we've established that he has rehearsed this move carefully, Glenn, on his home gym in uh, his... the outer perimeter of the village. Yes, we have seen him practicing this particular fight move on his uneven bars where he swings into his homemade heavy bag. In two okay. different episodes, we've seen this. So it's very rewarding for uh, a viewer to finally see him use this finely honed technique against an actual opponent. I, I crouch corrected. Okay. As, as Kathy goes to leave the saloon, the kid assaults her. She bites his lip. Uh, more strawberry jam. Uh, he cries a single tear. Then he does that sort of horrible thing where you blink fast to show psychosis. I guess they like that is that is it's not how you <laughs> signal that. Uh, nothing about this is great. Nothing about this whole assault scene is is cool. Uh, the kid has killed her, uh, and then Six waits at the edge of town. He walks back into town. He sees the kid leaving the saloon. He enters the saloon, sees Kathy dead's body, and eventually buries her. Like that's his first go-to thing. It's a nice shot. It's a nice shot when he buries her. It's yeah. like as, as the sunshine is rising and then you see the uh, uh, graves. Next morning, he walks back to the sheriff's office in those wide whale corduroys that are not flattering. They make him look hippie, more hippie than he actually is. I would just say, you, 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 want, you want a tighter inseam. That's what I would say. I'll, I'll, I actually clocked the corduroys yep. as well mm-hmm. and was going to say... And listen, maybe I'm a child of the '90s, but I liked them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'd wear them. It's not. It's not the. It's not the fabric. It's. It's the fit. It's. It's always the fit. Um, <laughs> Glenn, I wanted more of this. I thought there would be more of this in every episode, and it, it only comes out in dribs and drabs. I encourage you to expound upon this subject if you wish. Yeah, I got layers. <laughs> I got layers, Chris. Layers. So he takes the gun. Finally, he does not leave the cannoli. He takes the gun. He does leave his badge. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kid's waiting for him. They gunfight, I guess. Is that the term? They 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 they, <laughs> they gunfight. They gunfight. <laughs> and then uh, pas pas de deux. How do you how do you say it? What's the? I, I, yeah, would, I think the, you, I think the S is silent. I think it's pa. They show down. They right. show down. They show down. Right, right. right. This, is, this is where uh, Alexis Canner insists that a frame by frame review will verify that he outdrew Magoon by one sixth mm, of a second. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's what he says. Now I know math. Okay. I know that one sixth of a second would be four frames of film. Oh, okay. Good, yeah. good to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He kills the kid. He walks into the saloon. He pours himself a whiskey. The judge comes in. He gloats. 
Uh, but then Six informs him that, look, dude, your leverage is gone because the kid killed Kathy. He doesn't say the kid killed Kathy. He says Kathy's dead. I think the judge can leap to that conclusion uh, because he's over-affectionate with her. Uh, the judge says he won't let him leave and that a bunch of goons attempt to ambush him. He takes them all out. Then the judge kills him. So this whole plan was leading up to this? Um, I would uh, No, in fact. But he awakens, you see. He's back in his turtleneck, his blazer... His khakis, his Mr. Rogers sneakers, uh, and the saloon is real, but the judge... I don't know why he doesn't wake up in the control room or someplace in the village at this point. Like, the fact that he is still... That would have been more satisfying. Right? Mm. I do... Before we we get to the the end game here, do you think... So the judge kills him. Mm -hmm. Do you think the judge went off script? Yes. Yes. uh, Alexis Kenner tells him, you you killed... You did something too early. Right, so if, if, if you would... I may have kind of zoned out at the yeah, end. Yeah, it, it it all goes by very quick, really. Generally, when when uh, number two and his various subordinates are quibbling with one another over who blew the line or like fucked up the con or whatever, it's mm-hmm. it's more enjoyable than it is in in this episode. Yeah. So the judge is a black and white standee holding a gun. The kid out in the out in the yard is a dead black and white standee. How many standees? <laughs> yeah. The horse is a standee. So I did they have that. different standees yeah. for every every action that these people took? It's like, oh, switch it in, switch it in. <laughs> he this, runs away. By the, way, the standees, the standees to me are like, this is what's great about the prisoner. Like, no other yeah. show would do something so weird, but also uh, make it make sense in the context of the show. Like, that, yeah. I loved that bit. I like them, too. Like, I, I, don't, I don't like waking up in the saloon, but I do like the standees. Yeah, agreed. He runs, he, 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 and finds himself overlooking the village where the Oompa Band of Dread is playing, and they're going around the, they're going a, around a the fountain. A really, really winnowed force, right? That was yeah, like a very true. small parade of Oompa playing. But they yeah, they, do, really they sad. do that all the time? Are they just 24-7? <laughs> just going like, yes. that's torture. He goes to number two's office where he and the kid, who we now learned is number eight, and Kathy, who we now learned is number 22, are looking sheepish. I think this is our first number 22. Uh, we've is it? Uh, no, number seems... eight, the, the queen in Checkmate was, uh, was also an eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, ben, they save a lot of money on badges on this show by just recycling all the numbers. <laughs> I guess they just did not have you know enough imaginative firepower to think of some other two- and three-digit numbers. The lighting in the shot is odd because his flesh-colored eyebrows, which always are hard to see, are just completely invisible. So he looks like he's on drag race right before the runway. He's like just about to paint them on. Uh, He leaves. And then number two remonstrates, number eight, by repeating the plan in its entirety. I knew it wouldn't work. Fill him with hallucinatory drugs. Put him in a dangerous environment. Talk to him through microphones. And he's doing it in this incredulous voice. Now, this doesn't work. But it didn't, did it? Give him love. Take it away. Isolate him. Make him kill. Then face him with death. He'll crack. Break him. You can't have somebody say, oh, this was your plan, and then go on for a full minute of screen time with fill him with hallucinatory drugs, put him in a dangerous environment, talk to him through microphones. Uh, The kid didn't talk, so what what the hell was the kid saying? Now, hold on. Yes. Um, have you guys seen the series Le Bureau? Not yet. I've heard it's on not. my list. I have not. Get get to it. Um, my wife and I just, just finished it, um, and we enjoyed the hell out of it after a bunch of people had recommended it. And one of the things that show does so well is this kind of exposition, really? because it's it's a you know it's a, a intelligence show. Mm-hmm. So they're constantly telling 
their coworkers things that their coworkers were probably already sure. know. <laughs> As you and, know, I'm your sister. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. right. Um, but they, they, I don't know, there's something about it that, that it's framed so perfectly. Like I learned a lot about writing exposition mm. just in watching wow. these five seasons and the prisoner does the same trick. It's disbelief, right? That's one way to do it is mm. we did this and this, that would never work. Mm -hmm. Um, but somehow it doesn't play. <laughs> We've seen better versions of the same scene yeah. in this show before at the end of uh, schizoid man with Anton Rogers, right? Glenn, that like, that's a yeah. much more convincing version of this. And maybe that's it, right? Mm. You can't go back to that trick again and again. Right. And again. Yeah. I, I think it's it's purely the length. I think it's the the how convoluted this plan yeah. is and how he has to go through, give him love, take it away, <laughs> isolate him, make him kill, then face him with death. He'll crack, <laughs> break him, even in his mind, and the rest will be easy. That's too much. It's way too oh, much. Yeah. When you do it like that, they sound like lyrics, Glenn. Now, now I kind of like <laughs> it. You said yourself we would get involved and do what we would in the real situation. <laughs> well, then don't blame my methods, just your own darn lack of self-control. To have that one tone for like a minute of screen time and having, because he has to, he doesn't go anywhere in that speech, right? There's no, mm -hmm. there's no modulation. It's just, how dare you? Bah, 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 bah. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And also the kid didn't talk, so he obviously wasn't speaking through a microphone. So what the hell? <laughs> and I'm with two. This is a wildly overcomplicated plan that doesn't make any sense. I completely agree with two. I would, I'd have the same incredulous voice. Do we know by this time how long Six has been in the village. I, we never know. Right. I mean, there, there are do, conflicting. Been no, gone that, a year, right? You know, that's that's uh, a thing. It, right. Well, you know, whether you accept that episode uh -huh. at all, right? Which I mean, some observers, Alex Cox says that you just have to pull that one out of the just that, that's that's your discard. That's <laughs> no, your mulligan. You still episode. made it. It's part of the series. Yep, yep, yep. Shut up, Alex Cox. Yep. I agree. I don't understand when they when they have this willy nilly production schedule where they can do one real season and then just four episodes. Why we even need to do one at all while our star is right. unavailable and our location yeah. is unavailable. I, yeah. I don't get it. You know, it. Chris, it's a lot like the end of Felicity. <laughs> <laughs> Wikipedia, it, yeah, everyone. Yeah. Um, exactly. Children, uh, yes. Because I was going to say, like, if he's been in the village for some time, and their their whole the whole point of the existence of this village is to get this information from Six, like, I'm sure they've tried tried a lot of stuff mm. and stuff we haven't seen already so maybe they have naturally gotten to the drug him make him understand love make him understand uh, make him get in a gunfight like maybe it's a natural progression um it's not that they it's it's like uh, give him love take it away it's like give him love show me love uh kathy starts crying in the room, uh, and then uh, even though they're Canadian uh, and an American, uh, they look at her the way two British people would if anybody started <laughs> expressing emotion. <laughs> so good acting there. Uh, Kathy goes back to the fake set of Harmony, goes to the stairs where she died, which I like that idea. I like, I like, I, I, there's something in there. I do like uh -huh. that too. Uh, she finds eight the kids. And then face slam, that's the end of the episode. Very satisfying. Good. Five <laughs> That's out of right. six. We're that to the end. Right. But no, that the the eight, the kid, is hiding under the stairs. What are you doing here, number eight? The game's over, number eight. Kathy. He calls her by her fake name. Now the kid never called her by her name, right? Because the kid didn't speak. And he says, Kathy. Uh, he then strangles her. Why? Uh, six 
happens to be walking real close. Real, real close. This is the thing he does. When a woman is screaming and about to die, right, yeah. he's like he's like a mockingbird. He shows up just, he is a harbinger of death. Uh, he hears a scream. He's never within quite enough earshot to effect an actual right. rescue, but he will avenge very promptly. He storms in. He knocks eight out. Kathy gets a last moment to say, as you mentioned, Chris, that she wishes it had been real. I wish it had been real. Well, uh, I mean, and again, this death doesn't make any sense because if you're strangled, she wouldn't, you know... I don't think you get a second wind, <laughs> like after being strangled to death. She dies from not being choked. It's unclear. And then number two, uh, <laughs> zips in on his mini moke. <laughs> is, this is how you de-escalate tension. Uh-huh. You have somebody going hit a little golf cart. Uh-huh. Um, eight, the kid picks himself up, and then things the kid would never say because he didn't talk. And it's clearly eighty yards, so it's all like, no, no judge, you're not going to slap me again. No, no, blah, 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 blah. You wait for me, judge. You wait. No more. You're gonna hit me. No more. No. No more. And throws mm-hmm. himself off a one-story balcony and dies because <laughs> tried and true convention of this yes. show. A fall of ten feet is consistently <laughs> lethal. The island in Lost um, had certain anomalies. I think there are just gravity wells all over the place, sure. right outside windows in the village. Uh, it all happened so fast. It's too much to happen at the very end. If it was established that they all did drugs, I I might buy it because they're all like coming off of it, but it's clearly that he's yeah. the one who did it. And then... No, I think we can agree that when it comes to screenwriting, David Tomlin is one hell of a first assistant director, Glenn. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then slam, uh, thing, face. We're, that's the end of the episode. <laughs> and and that's, that's what happened. I really thought that he was going to wake up again <laughs> ah. after, after yes. that fall from a... From a low height, mm-hmm. like because that was so right. unbelievable, and the strangling was so out of nowhere that I thought six would be like whoa, 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 and then wake up. An inception yeah, 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 yeah. where you have to fall a short distance to wake up from your dream within the dream within the dream. <laughs> right, right, exactly. He's got a kick. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's got a spinning top, spinning top hat. <laughs> I, yeesh, boy, I really, I didn't like the first. 48 minutes okay. I didn't like the last two I just didn't uh, like I just I have no connection to westerns I have no strong okay. feelings about well westerns. that is and that so, is that is your failing to uh, connect to mm, that no I agree mm. with you guys that the, the pacing is wonky but I love this premise I mourn the other nine episodes that we could have gotten to to have a, a second complete season Clearly, you could do this sort of thing in different genres over and over and over. And I think it would be interesting. Like, I mean, I think everyone would figure out that this is another simulation, another con in the first scene. And I would still enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, the the fatal flaw, though, of this show is they can do these one-off episodes, but they don't serve the bigger story. Right. And we're looking at this from a 2021 perspective when we've seen Breaking Bad, right, where that's not episodic TV. Mm -hmm. So this was still the heyday of episodic TV. So this show still feels episodic. And I like to me, the best TV is episodic with an overarching story. Mm -hmm. That's the good stuff. That's the good wife. That's Buffy like that. I, I love that format. Um, And I think that this was one of the first shows at least as far as I know, mm-hmm. to use that format. But the problem is the non-mythology episodes right. don't do anything to reveal 
even new facets of the character. Right, right. So this is a monster of the week episode. Yeah, <laughs> and and yeah, yeah. like the Magoon's insistence on total creative control over everything, which is apparently why his his story editor George Markstein left after the first thirteen episodes. Um, that that really just tamped down the potential of this thing because writers more imaginative than Patrick McGowan probably were not given the opportunity to solve some of these yeah. problems. And uh, Lou Grade, the financier who paid for this and all the you know this at the time an unprecedentedly expensive TV series based on a verbal pitch from McGowan because Grade apparently never never read anything. Oh, so he's like all executives. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and every account of this feels the need to mention that apparently this this pitch meeting took place at six in the morning, which, okay, weird, but fine. Yeah. What? Don't know, but apparently McGowan had prepared this whole dossier with story notes and outlines and photographs of Port Mirion and, and Lou Grade. No, 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 just just tell it to me. Tell me tell me your idea. <laughs> and again, this is probably apocryphal, but I mean, it's it's, it's been reported a lot of places that uh, this sole meeting was what Lou Grade said, okay, I will fund... The production of this this whole series in the documentary on the blu-ray set don't knock yourself out uh lou grade he's saying like how in that initial meeting mcguin said i do have a resolution this will all make sense eventually people will be satisfied and uh grade was like okay i trust you and then apparently when they were going into production and in fallout mcguin went to him and said you know don't actually have an ending sorry uh didn't mm -hmm. didn't really have a plan here and um that was it mcguin wrote a big check that he couldn't cash mm -hmm. <laughs> so in that way it was groundbreaking to a lot of series that came after as well <laughs> the x-files and lost yep. <laughs> indeed lindelof. absolutely to to lindelof yeah. yeah we know where it's going <laughs> how do we conjugate the verb lindelof game of thrones uh, yep 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 <laughs> yep yeah okay so ratings out of six ben how do you rate this episode oof i give it a one and a half mm -hmm. oh boy I am, um, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. <laughs> One out of six. Wow. Wow. Chris. Okay. Well, I, I, I am, I'm going to give it, I don't think it's worse than the general really until mm. those last two minutes. Like I don't, I hate that Kathy gets killed again so mm -hmm. much, um, <laughs> that I'm, yeah, horrible. it's it's awful. Like most of the cruelty to women in this show generally just takes the form of Magoon yelling at them for no reason. Yep. This is a notably violent episode. I mean, this is, uh, mm -hmm. you know, for uh, Magoon, apparently, both in Danger Man and this series, you know, he felt like it, it should be more or less family friendly. I mean, aside from all the drugs and the, <laughs> you know, cruel uh, psych lips psychological and torture. Jam and, uh, yeah. yeah, a notably, notably violent episode with, as you say, Glenn, some, some casual sexual assault happening. Mm -hmm. uh, but I just so, I, oh, five I, out of six. Is that what you're about to say? Six, yes. I'm gonna, uh, <laughs> no, I'm going to give it. I'm going to give it three out of six. I'm going to give it three out of okay, six, which is what way, I gave the general. <laughs> it would have been a gentleman's four if not for those last two minutes. Okay. Just, this is an LA Confidential episode, and I am stealing this from William Goldman when he was writing his Oscars Roundup essay, whatever year that was, 1997, I think, where he basically said um, he would absolutely would would have voted for LA Confidential over Titanic for Best Picture if not for the final two scenes where one Guy Pierce sits in the interrogation room and explains the entire plot of the movie, and then we find out that uh, Russell Crowe is still alive. 
you know, after he's waiting in the car for Kim Basinger, we've seen him shot like eight times in different places. And uh, uh, he said, had that movie ended with uh, Guy Pierce shooting James Cromwell in the back and then holding his badge up as the as the cops approach, he would have been like absolutely best picture. There's no way I'm voting for Titanic. The, the simple fix of just cutting off the last two scenes. That is how I feel about this episode. Okay. All right. All right. Coming up next, The Girl Who Was Death, which is also another genre interpolation. They're kind of doing the classic spy show. The difference between that and this, I think, is going to be that that's what the Brits were doing at this time. That is a Brit genre, like the kind of British spy thing. This is American, or as he would say, American. And so I think that that's probably going to get closer to the bone. It's a very silly episode, if I remember, but I think it it has more going on because it it just it feels more it, it feels more confident, I guess. It feels more assured than this episode did to me. I'm looking forward to that. I mean, I I love <laughs> I love this whole era, warts and all. 60s spies are very much my jam. This same year, by the way, David Bauer, the judge, had a a role in You Only Live Twice. So, hmm. oh. as a diplomat. <laughs> <laughs> Remember <laughs> Diplomat, you guys? From uh, yeah. <laughs> He brought so much. People generally Diplomat. remember that that movie had the best Bond theme song and also David Bauer as Diplomat. <laughs> ben Blacker, my friend, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. And you were great. This was so much fun. You're Thanks for having honored me. Honored to have you here. We'll see you here next week. I can't wait to watch <laughs> the next episode. Uh, Please, anytime, uh, anytime. <laughs> Did it inspire you? It it shouldn't because it doesn't really connect. But did it inspire you to go back and look at other episodes? I mean, you got a lot. You got a lot on no. your plate. No, it didn't. No, <laughs> but, it didn't. Okay, okay. But, but um, hearing Chris talk about the documentary on the Blu-ray inspired me to go and watch that. Okay. and I actually really want to watch cool, that. Cool, 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 cool. It is a really great um, kind of uh, balls and strikes kind of it, like it is not a Patrick McGowan hagiography. I mean, you hear cool. you hear from people who couldn't stand him. You hear about the horrible way he treated directors and actresses. And wow. uh, yeah, and um, it is it is very credible. Oh, that's great. I can't wait. I'm I am, as you know, a process nerd. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'll be super into that. Ben, how do people follow you? Follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker. It's my name. And <laughs> man, there's. There's good stuff there. There's good stuff. <laughs> I'm just giving it away. A, a recasting of Hudson Hawk, is that what you said? Because I I mean... Get into it. I think Hudson Hawk <laughs> is pretty well cast. Um, okay. and, and you know what? I'm saying, okay. given the opportunity to remake Hudson right, Hawk, which, which I would do in a I don't second. Know, I don't know how that hasn't happened already. I mean, it's been 30 years. <laughs> I like, think I know. <laughs> Dude, I got six minutes left on my battery. I think my battery is, is committing oh, seppuku. Okay. I think huh, my battery is, huh, try, is trying. Uh, to, it's it's stringing a rubber right, around its neck because as soon as it hears okay. Hudson Hawk, actually, you know I'll what? see you for our Hudson Hawk fan club next week. <laughs> he thinks he's thanks kidding. again, Ben. Thank you, All guys. Right. Thank you, Ben. Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemick. I wrote our goofy theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark, singing and playing keyboards, and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion, with Marcus Newstead on the bass. Check out Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com and or VitalVoiceTraining.com 
Jonathan's band Daybringer is on Bandcamp. Write to the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at Gmail. You can tweet us at not a number pod. Rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple or Stitcher or whatever platform you use to hear it. Glenn is the author and narrator of the forthcoming NPR podcast, Startup Guide, if you'd like to learn NPR's clinically proven data-driven approach to making podcasts. Here's a preview. Fission prognosis programming must include a quantum permutation of all cause and effects of supplementary elements. It's no degree partial. It's a degree absolute. Got nothing for me there. You're giving me nothing. You're giving me I got nothing. nothing. I don't know what we're doing. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. I know. I know.